If you're new with us, we are starting a new series here in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> Great Sunday for you to be with us. We love working through books of the Bible, and we've had the privilege of studying over 30 now uh, at IDC, and this one, Lord willing, will carry us into the end of May. Um, so we're delighted uh, to, to have you uh, in on this very first one. So let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help over this sermon and also in this study to come in the weeks ahead. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you um, for the grace that we see in this passage and for your instruction that you've given to this church in Corinth. And we pray that we would not just be going through a religious experience um, out of ritual as we go, come week by week into your word, but rather we would encounter the living God in his word. And this, this study would transform our lives and that it would transform our church, uh, that we may glorify you more faithfully. And we pray this all in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Someone quipped that this is a typical outline of one of Paul's letters. Number one, I thank God for you. Number two, hold fast to the gospel. Number three, for the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. <laughs> and number four, Timothy says hi. Now, if you haven't studied one of Paul's letters, you may wonder why that's funny, and it's, it's partly because of the way it's stated, uh, and it's partly because it's, it's kind of true. Uh, and, it's, and number three is really going to come out in the letter to the Corinthians. Uh, this is a very troubled church. It's a very gifted church, but it is a church with a lot of problems. And in this letter, Paul is going to answer questions uh, that have come to him from the Corinthians, and he's going to address many of these problems. And it's, it's not a bland book. Uh, this is not a rice cake epistle. Uh, th this is full of flavor. It's full of hot sauce. And so I look forward to, to jumping in it uh, with you. Back a long time ago when I was in seminary taking a, a cl class, a New Testament Greek class on, on 1 Corinthians, I remember the professor saying that the church in Corinth was the most problematic church in the first century. And I, I was like, man, I can't wait to, to just hear what the problems were and what the issues are. And some of you are familiar with this letter. I've already had text messages this week saying, hey, what do you think about head coverings? Uh, and I'm like, well, I'll give that one to Walter. Um, you know, what do you think about these gifts of tongues and prophecy? Well, I'll give that to another guy. Uh, we'll get there in due time. Those are later chapters. I don't have to worry about them yet. Um, but we, we'll dive into all of them in this study. And it's also a reminder that every church in the first century had problems. Uh, most of the letters are actually correcting particular problems. But the church in Corinth had a lot of problems. This was a church that would have caused Paul to pull out his hair. It was, again, it was a gifted church, but it was a troubled church. Spurgeon said, no church had sunk so low as this one, although it was the most gifted. Which is a sermon in itself, right? That you can be gifted and have some serious moral issues. You can be gifted and have some serious character issues. And, and we'll see some of that as, as it unfolds. But even though the church in Corinth was a mess, you could say, Paul still did not lose hope. He did not cancel the Corinthians. He writes to encourage them, to instruct them, and he believed that they could, under Christ, grow into a healthy, vibrant church. And we know that perfection will not exist at this local church either, but we do want to be a dynamic, maturing church, and this letter is good for us. We need to hear what Paul has to say to this church ourselves. A little background before we jump into the verses. Paul planted this church around A.D. 51. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. He writes this letter to the church about three or four years after planting the church. It's not the first time he's written to the church. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, 
that he's already written a letter. We don't have that one preserved in, in our Bible. 1 Corinthians would have been his second letter uh, that he wrote uh, to the Corinthian church. Later, Paul would make what he calls a painful visit to Corinth, uh, and he would have to write a tearful letter, also not preserved for us, and then he writes 2 Corinthians. So oftentimes, people refer to these letters, the ones that we have in Scripture and, and the others, as the Corinthian correspondence, that, that Paul has been having conversation and dialogue and instruction with this Corinthian church for some time. Now, as you peek back into Acts chapter 18, you see how it all started. Um, Paul has just left Athens, goes to Corinth. If we were on a tour bus today, you could make that drive from Athens to Corinth, some, somewhere around an hour, I guess, depending on traffic and how uh, the driver is. Um, and uh, you arrive there, you can see a lot of the ancient remains of Corinth. And Paul goes there to Corinth, and he's engaged in his vocation of tent making. He uh, finds some new companions, Priscilla and Aquila. He begins to see some fruitfulness in his ministry. Uh, one guy, he says in uh, Acts 18, verse 8, named Crispus. Um, I love that name, of Crispus Cream. Uh, he, he is uh, the synagogue ruler, and he is converted. He's one of the first converts. One of the first converts in Corinth was the synagogue ruler. And then uh, Paul is experiencing opposition. And the Lord appears to Paul in a vision, and it's, it's really sweet when the Lord says to Paul, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. He says, Paul, keep on speaking. Not because you're so great at it. Keep on speaking because I'm with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. Which wasn't true in all the cities, but it was true in Corinth. And I have many people in this city who are my people. And it says that Paul stayed then for a year and six months. He stayed a long time in Corinth before moving on uh, to Ephesus, which is where he eventually would write uh, the letter from that we're reading here in this particular study. Now, if you're looking at the text, you'll notice down in verse 11 that Paul has received a report, he says, from Chloe's people that there is quarreling among the, uh, the Corinthians. You see, in the first century, Christians used to argue with each other, and there, there, was, there used to be squabbles in the church, and you know, now that we're in utopia, like, we just look back and wonder what, what was wrong with those people. And so Paul is, is going to address the issue of division. It's a major issue in Corinth. A lot of fractions, or factions, in the church, uh, fractions too, I guess, uh, in the church, and Paul is going to call them to unity. Um, and really the first four chapters are going to take up that, that particular theme. Now, you should know something about uh, the, uh, the city of Corinth. Uh, in the words of Doc Holliday in the movie Tombstone, it was very cosmopolitan. Um, it, it was very rich, very significant, very uh, wealthy. About 150,000 to 300,000 Roman citizens and about 460,000 slaves. It contained a lot of freed criminals as well. And so consequently, you had a big disparity between the rich and the poor in Corinth. And that backdrop is very important as we look at sort of the class divisions that had formed, particularly around the Lord's Supper, uh, when, we, when we get to that text. Further, this was a town known for its, its banking industry. Uh, it was strategically located. They say in business, what you need is location, location, location. And that's what Corinth had. There was this four and a half mile isthmus of Corinth that allowed ships to come in and out easily, stop off in Corinth, and have some business and do all sorts of things. A lot of tourists were coming there. 
Uh, it was a culture that was known for competitiveness, self-achievement, and self-promotion, which is also an important kind of cultural backdrop as, as we hear what Paul says about his ministry and how it was different than the, 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 the teachers that the Corinthians gravitated toward. Cult prostitution was very common. The philosopher Plato even used the term Corinthian girl to refer to a prostitute. The famous Isthmian Games was second only to the Olympics, bringing travelers from all over the world. And the city valued impressive public speakers, and there were even speech contests at these Isthmian Games. And it's because that the, the, the Corinthian believers lived in that context that, that Paul calls them to be saints. It's one of the main themes, we, we see it struck immediately in our text, that they're called to be saints in a very immoral, ungodly, idolatrous culture. He's calling them to a radically different vision of life, a different way of life, and he'll, he'll get to some really strong words, but first, it's striking how Paul starts off so positively with the Corinthians. Like, I think if you knew what Paul knew, you might be tempted just to say, will you guys knock it off? See you next year. But he he doesn't do that. He's, he's actually thankful for God's work in their life. You say, what makes the, the letter so uh, dynamic and, and so, so spicy? Well, he addresses the issue of divisions, egregious immorality, which would include incest. He talks about civil litigation before the unrighteous, degenerate ideas about sexuality, about um, division around the Lord's Supper, a faulty understanding of spiritual gifts, that's one of the most debated portions we'll get to, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, about the issue of gifts, and that in chapter 15, some had denied the resurrection. In spite of all that, Paul gives thanks to God for the Corinthians. And what he does in addition to giving thanks in this opening section is he touches on themes that he will develop throughout the letter. That's very typical of Paul's letters. He has standard ways of, 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 of opening the letter, but what he says, he drops these little nuggets or these little flashes of, of, of topics that he's going to address throughout the letter, and that's what he does here. And before I no, uh, point you to these six traits, these six topics that he introduces, I want you just to, to notice that Paul is writing, and this is quite obvious, to a church. And he says it's to the church of God that is in Corinth. It's just a good remind, reminder to us that it is God's church. The church of God that is in Corinth. In other words, they are a church because of God's divine activity, not human invention. The Corinthians just didn't get together and say, hey, let's, let's kind of do this thing and we'll call it a church. But rather, God brought them to faith. I remember, he promised Paul, I have many people in this city who are my people. And then he established a church in Corinth. He used individuals, but it was God's activity, God's grace, God's providence, and the triune God is the real church planter. He is bringing people to faith. He is establishing his church. They're Christians by divine grace. Now, as we look at this text together, notice with me six traits of a vibrant church. These are six qualities that Paul longs to, to see in the Corinthian church that are great things for us to pray for our church as well, and that we may contribute individually to these particular uh, marks or traits of a church. All right, first of all, a healthy, vibrant, maturing church is a Christ-centered church. The centrality of Christ is seen in literally every verse of 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 9. You see Jesus mentioned by name or the pronoun referring to him. Paul strikes this chord immediately. Let me just walk you through it. 
He says, Paul called by the will of God, emphasizing God's initiative and setting Paul apart for the founding and forming of churches. To be an apostle, apostle is one who is sent. He's sent on behalf of Christ Jesus. And he mentions the brother Sosthenes. Paul is always talking about his companions who are with him. He understands that ministry is a, is a team sport. And you read about a guy named Sosthenes. If it's the same Sosthenes in Acts chapter 18, verse 17, he also was a synagogue ruler, which again is very striking that you would have two synagogue rulers who were some of the early Christians uh, there in Corinth. And it's also a reminder that the church in Corinth is a blend of Jew and Gentile. When Paul went into cities, he didn't start two churches. Let's start a Jewish church and a Gentile church. He started a church. And they were to work out these differences in the context of community, with Christ being central. To the church, the one who are called out, ecclesia, the, the assembly, <clears throat> the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So they're Christians because of their union with Christ. Called to be saints together with those who are in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours. That there's a common commonality that is shared between churches because they have a common Lord. And then he says that typical opening of Paul, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful summary of the gospel. God's grace is the cause of our salvation and peace is the result of this salvation. By his grace, we've been brought into relationship with God, and we experience now the peace of God. It begins this Thanksgiving in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So again, we're Christians because of divine grace, because of our union with Jesus. That in every way you are enriched in him. All of our spiritual blessings are because we are in him. He mentions particular gifts there, speech and knowledge even as the testimony about Christ, another way to say the gospel, was confirmed among you. That is, that this gospel was proclaimed to you, and you give evidence that you have received it and have been changed by it. So that you are not lacking any gift as you wait now for, he begins to talk about the second coming of Christ, the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, praise God that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Guiltless. We can stand guiltless on that day because Jesus was crucified in our place, took our guilt, took our shame, took our place so that we could stand righteous before God. And he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. What a thought. We've been called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, notice what Paul does in these nine verses. Immediately, you've got a, a, a divided church. He puts the attention on Jesus Christ. The spotlight is on Jesus. What does a troubled church need? What does a divided church need? They need to get their eyes on Jesus Christ. Much division happens from that fundamental problem, right, of turning our attention to other things other than the Savior. So he says, Jesus is the one who called Paul to be an apostle. He's the one who made the Corinthians holy. He's the one that gave them grace. He's the source of all riches. He's the subject of Paul's preaching. He's the basis for Christian hope. He's the focus of our future, and he's the one in whom we have fellowship. A vibrant, maturing church is a church that never stops talking about Jesus. They never stop exalting Jesus. They keep their eyes on Jesus. 
And we'll look at that more as the chapters unfold. But as you think about how this letter is structured, in chapter 2, Paul says, I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Then at the end of the letter, chapter 15, he says, For I delivered to you what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised according to the Scriptures. So I resolve to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what is of first importance is that Christ died, was buried, and rose again. But in the middle, Paul talks about a lot of stuff. I've already mentioned some of the topics he takes up. But they're all to be viewed in reference to the gospel. All to be viewed in, with this sort of Christ-centered lens by which we understand them. Therefore, every theme that he talks about is tied to this one dominant theme, the good news about Jesus Christ. And so the big takeaway here is quite obvious for us. The first step we take in growing as a vibrant, mature church is we keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's keep the focus on him. Jesus is the only superstar of the church. Number two, a vibrant, maturing church, and not just a Christ-centered church, it's a submissive church. Paul draws attention to his apostleship in verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, in a way, that's not totally unique to Paul. He calls himself an apostle in the beginning of other letters. Not every letter, um, but in, in most of his letters, he will do that. Uh, there are some, uh, some places where that's uh, not the case, like uh, to the letter to the Philippians. The reason Paul would underscore it here is probably because this was a big problem in Corinth. That is, they were denying or rejecting Paul's apostleship. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to his apostleship ten times. Now why does he have to keep doing that? Well, Paul's bringing strong corrections to this church. And many are saying about Paul, he's too weak to be an apostle. He's very unimpressive as a speaker. He suffered too much to be an apostle. His teaching isn't very powerful. And so Paul has to say, you are not, um, you, 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 you're, you're looking at me through, through faulty glasses. That I've been set apart by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. That is, a, an ambassador of Christ Jesus. Therefore, we are to listen to him under Christ. And so it is with us, Acts 2.42, the church is devoted to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. And now we understand that all to be the totality of, of God's word. A vibrant church is one who submits to God's word. We don't stand over God's word, we sit under God's word. And we say, change me. Right? We read it, but we're also saying, read me. We try to exegete it, but we say, exegete me. We don't stand over it as a critic. We stand under it as a worshiper. A worshiper of this God who has spoken. And a vibrant, mature church is one that says, even when the stuff that is taught here isn't popular, we believe it. Even when it's hard, we embrace it. And that is a church that transforms the world. So as we go into 1 Corinthians, there are going to be some challenging stuff for us to be thinking about. But let's be reminded that God's word is for our good. And every day we should be going to it, meditating on it day and night, saying, change me. We embrace your word. A vibrant church is a submissive church. Thirdly, a vibrant church is a holy church. You notice verse 2, Paul goes on to say, the church of God in Corinth 
to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. A big theme in Corinth is that they would be saints. Now, given all that is said about the church in Corinth, you may read this opener and say, Paul, I think you have the wrong church. <laughs> you think the Corinthians are saints. Did you mean Philippians? I think you got the wrong address, Paul. But he knows that positionally, because of Christ, it's true. That even though they are being plagued with divisions, there's discrimination, there's idolatry that they're being tempted by, that they are pure by divine grace. This call to holiness, you can, you can think about it in terms of our positional holiness and our practical holiness or progressive holiness. Positionally, it's stated right here, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. You see, we are, we are not saints because we have done some extraordinary act and sainthood has been conferred upon us. We are saints because Jesus has performed the act for us and given us that work, and that's attributed to us. We are saints because Jesus is holy, and we've attached ourselves to Jesus. And now we could say of ourselves, we are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's a fact. Now practically, some work to do. Positionally, it's true. And we have to remind ourselves of that day by day. Listen to this wonderful text later in the letter, chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, he says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit. He says that's what you were, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. Our past iniquity is not our present identity. We have a new identity because of what Jesus has done in our place. It's in him that we're sanctified, justified, We've been washed. Now, practically, we are to live out this new identity. We are to become what we are. Called to be saints. Growing more into the image of Jesus. And so he's calling the church here, a church that is holy, to be holy. A vibrant church understands that. They understand their positional identity in Jesus. And by God's grace, they're seeking to become more and more like Jesus practically. So, we have a Christ-centered church, a submissive church, a holy church, fourthly, a unified church. The Corinthian believers are not called to be holy as isolated Christians, but to be together. As he says in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those, plural, God's people, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now we're going to see as the letter unfolds that the Corinthians were tempted to drift into self-centeredness and they experienced disunity. Paul will call them to unity. He will address the subject of unity in their own local context. But you notice here these opening verses go beyond even their local context. They're called to be a holy people together even beyond their own local congregation. You see that together with all those in every place 
who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thistleton, the commentator, says, too often the Corinthians seem to imagine that they are the only pebble on the beach. <laughs> that they can think and live or sink or swim without regard to the practices of other Christians in other places. We are also part of this universal church, and we must feel a sense of oneness with every other confessing and worshiping believer in Christ. And I think Paul's probably introducing what is somewhat of a rebuke to the Corinthians in that they thought they were hot stuff. They had these gifts of speech and knowledge, and it's kind of like Paul is saying, you know, there are other churches too. And what, what binds us together is not age or, or affinity or nationality. What binds us together is that we all call Jesus Christ Lord. We confess his lordship, and therefore if I'm in Uganda or some other part of the world and I meet a real believer, that there's a real commonality, that uh, we're brothers or sisters because we, we call Jesus Christ Lord. That's a marvelous thing, isn't it? What binds us together are not our preferences. What binds us together is not that we look alike or dress alike. It's that we're bound to Jesus Christ together. And that way we're more like marbles than magnets. Excuse me, we're more like magnets than marbles. <laughs> that we're, that we're, we're internally, we're drawn together because the Spirit of God is in our hearts. We confess Jesus is Lord. So there's a, a, uni, a unified church. is a mark of a vibrant church. Number five, a vibrant church is <clears throat> a gifted church. This was a real gift, a real uh, um, distinctive about the Corinthian church. As I alluded to earlier, Spurgeon's quote, no church was more gifted, and yet no church had more issues. And so I think there's a strong word for us here in this text as we, we minister and, and, and serve here in a very gifted church with, filled with gifted people. What is it that Paul says to this particular church? Well, Paul doesn't uh, diminish these gifts. He doesn't say, um, he's actually very positive about them. The, the problem is not with the gifts. The problem is with an inappropriate pride that developed in the hearts of the Corinthians and an improper use of their gifts. So how they viewed themselves and how they were deploying these gifts. You notice he says, grace was given to you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. So this grace is given to you. Now, if God gives you something, it's grace. And you shouldn't boast because you didn't do anything to earn it. Which is what he says later in the letter, right? In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? So why do you boast as if you did not receive it? <laughs> so receiving God's grace, receiving spiritual gifts, should never be cause for arrogance or pride. But actually the opposite of that. It should always leave us humbled. And it's sort of that attitude and, and how these gifts are being used that Paul will address in the letter. But now he's positive. He's given thanks to God because God has bestowed grace on this church. He says they have been enriched, been enriched in him. It's a pleasure to remind you, Christian, that you are spiritually rich. You've received grace in salvation, and you've received grace in that you have been gifted in some way. Paul says to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I read a story not long ago where 
group of college students went to a thrift store and they bought a $20 couch. When once they got home, they realized it was stuffed with cash, $41,000 stuffed in their couch. Not sure how or why 41000 was in there, but all of a sudden, uh, you know, their situation had changed. And the believer, sometimes when you read the Bible, you can be surprised at how rich we are in Christ. What we have in Him. We are rich in grace, rich in gifts. Gifts that are to be used for the building up of the body. Calvin said, it is as if Paul had said, the Lord has not merely honored you with the light of the gospel. That's grace but has eminently endowed you with the graces that may be of servants to the saints, helping them forward in the way of salvation. That's what they're for. They're not for boasting, but for a blessing. And he mentions two particular gifts that were present in Corinth, two gifts that they took great pride in, speech and knowledge. We'll have weeks to think through these things when we get to it somewhere around chapter 8 and then following He had blessed them with communication gifts and with insight. And again, these are wonderful gifts that can bless people in mass, communication and knowledge. But they can also become the basis for pride. They can lead to, to great problems. Because a danger with knowledge is that you can come across as a know it all. And Paul will later say in chapter 8 knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. What you need is not an empty head. You just need that knowledge blended with love. And if you can be a person that that's, has this love blended with knowledge, then you can be a wonderfully faithful and effective servant of Christ. He says this testimony of Christ was confirmed about you, this message of Christ, that is God's work is evident in your life so that you're not lacking any spiritual gift. You lack nothing as a church. It's not the gifts. It's how you're thinking about them and using them. Now just step away for a moment and notice what Paul has done. Because you can miss this if you just read through this Thanksgiving. In light of all that he will have to correct the Corinthians about, he has still taken time to give God thanks for them. He's able to see evidences of God's grace even though he knows their issues in their lives. Do you find it easier to critique or to see evidences of grace in people's lives? Notice God's grace, how he mentions these words, given, enriched, confirmed, called. I think the way you are quick to spot evidences of grace is that you're a humble person who's been in awe of grace yourself. There's an old Peanuts cartoon where Linus is curled up in a chair quietly reading a book when Lucy says, It just happens by looking at you. And he says, what happens? And she says, I can feel the criticism coming on. (laughs) Can you identify with that? Or it's like Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice. He's described as a man who, quote, never looks at a woman but to see a blemish. Paul doesn't start with the problems in Corinth. He sees evidences of grace. Sam Crabtree in his book, Practicing Affirmation, says, even to a bunch of scallywags, Paul affirms the work of God he sees in them. I think the proud tendency to focus on the blemishes of others is rooted in the fact that we have sowed seeds of self-righteousness and self-exaltation in our hearts over the years. And in order to see evidences of grace, we need to put self-righteousness and self-exaltation to death. 
And what do I mean by evidences of grace? I think you think about these, what Paul just has done here, two kind of categories. If you see the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, you see evidences of grace in people's lives. You give God thanks when you see those things. You, you affirm them, give God thanks for them. A Christ-centered church is a gifted church. Finally, number six, a Christ-centered church is a waiting church. We are waiting the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Waiting in New Testament is not passive. It's we're eagerly anticipating. We are working in view of that coming that is, that is headed our way. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, Paul says, we await a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. We're reminded as we think about the coming of Christ that your suffering and my suffering has an expiration date. It will not exist throughout eternity. It has an expiration date. And you're kind of like, well, I wish Jesus would hurry up. Well, that's actually the prayer, right? Maranatha. (laughs) We're awaiting this great revealing, and it's this hope that makes us holy. It's this hope that makes us unified. It's this hope that makes us want to use our gifts faithfully. So he says, we're waiting on the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he calls it the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. A day of salvation and judgment is coming. And if you're not a Christian, we're taught in the scriptures that God is being patient with you, giving you time to repent so that you can come to know the Lord Jesus, share in all these blessings. For those who are are believers, we are waiting on this day with great anticipation. We have have certain days in our lives that are are focused on certain people, don't we? You go to someone's wedding, nobody's there to look at you. Everybody but the bride is just supporting cast. It's all about the bride. Or graduation day, we put signs in the yard. You don't go walk across the stage if you're not the one graduating. Like, we're there for that person. Or on your birthday. We're not singing to everybody else. That would be weird, wouldn't it? Let's all sing happy birthday to each individual that's here. <laughs> no, it's the one who has, is having the birthday. And the day of the Lord is Jesus' day. All eyes will be on him on that day. We will see him as he is. And until then, notice that great word of promise, he will sustain us until the end. Who is it that's going to get us home? Jesus Christ. The one who brought us in the first place is going to see to it that our salvation is brought to completion. We will persevere because we are being preserved. In other words, we can trust Jesus. Have you ever stopped to think, those of you who travel a little bit, how we're doing things today that we never thought we would do about 30 years ago? Like Uber? You're just going to get in some strange person's car? Like, my mom told me that. No, Tony, you don't talk to strangers. You certainly don't get in their cars. Or an Airbnb. Like, I'm just going to stay in somebody else's house. And yet we trust the system. We have every reason to trust Jesus Christ. You can trust, he's the better Uber. He, he is the better Airbnb. <laughs> perfect score, perfect, perfect record. Five star all the way. He's going to get us home. And not only that, notice how we're going to be presented guiltless. How is that possible? I know I'm not guiltless by myself. I'm full of guilt. This is the problem of humanity, isn't it? How will we get guilt off of us? And you can go one of two ways. Human achievement or divine accomplishment. You can say, I'll do it, I'll earn it, I'll merit it. Or you'll say, Jesus Christ paid it all. 
I put my faith in him. The reason I can be guiltless on the day of Jesus Christ is because Jesus took my place. He took my guilt. He took my shame. And the devil even now wants to throw up our guilt in our face. I love that line from Luther when he says, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I also shall be. I can't wait to meet Luther. <laughs> it's gonna, yeah, I really can't wait to meet Jesus, to meet him. But yes, that's what we tell him. I know who I am. I know where I stand, but I know who my Savior is. And we have confidence while we wait. Verse 9, last verse. Because God is faithful. The basis for our hope is rooted in that fundamental truth. God is faithful. The basis for my hope and your hope is not in our giftedness, but in God's faithfulness. This faithful God has called us into the fellowship of his Son, and he will see us through to the end. I have some teammates. We've been on a text thread together I used to play ball with in college. And one of my we had a bad year one year. Actually, we had bad years most years. But one particular year in, in the yearbook, he was quoted as saying, not a great record, but a great fellowship. That's a good slogan for the Corinthians. They did not have a great record, but they had a great fellowship. They were called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ, and this will pave the way into their discussion about unity, that they've been called into his fellowship. Therefore, they should work out their fellowship with, with truth and grace and wisdom. It's a messy church that has a magnificent fellowship. So, as we conclude and pray, marks of a vibrant, maturing church. Let's be a Christ-centered church. Let's make much of Jesus, IDC. He is the only superstar here. A submissive church. Let's follow his word. A holy church. Let's become who we are. A united church. Let's be centered on Jesus, not preferences or personalities. A gifted church. Let's use our gifts to bless and not to boast. And a waiting church. Let's be encouraged that God is keeping us and soon we will see our Christ. Praise be to God for his word. Father, we thank you for the promises contained here in this Thanksgiving. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the Lord Jesus for what he has done and what he will do in the future. And we're thankful that he is sustaining us until the very end. And now as we think about what the Lord Jesus has done for us, will do so by taking the Lord's Supper. And I pray, Lord Christ, that you would use this time to continue to stir our affections to worship and to brotherhood. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.